From the American Association of Nurse Practitioners, I'm your host, AANP President April Kapu, and this is NP Pulse, the voice of the nurse practitioner. Welcome to NP Pulse, AANP's official podcast, bringing you unique nurse practitioner voices, and expertise on issues that matter to NPs and our patients. In the United States, half of all adults experience anxiety or depression or both. As NPs, we provide high-quality treatment to these patients in a variety of settings. And as we know, anxiety and depression are manageable. So it is imperative that patients can easily access the mental health services we provide. Today's guest is here to share her insights on innovative treatment programs and technology innovations that have helped us fill this important need. Dr. Kristen Arden is a psych mental health NP from a family of nurses who has worked in state hospitals and with the Veterans Health Administration, where she assisted with the implementation of one of their first telehealth programs and outpatient behavioral health. She has a passion for helping patients access high quality, affordable health care, no matter where these patients reside or what their health care concerns might be. On today's podcast, we'll discuss some common misconceptions about anxiety and depression, and we'll learn why a daily check-in can help everyone understand their own emotions. Welcome to NP Pulse, Kristen. It is so nice to have you with us today. Thank you so much for inviting me to join you. Well, I was just so excited uh, when you agreed to come on the podcast because I know you are definitely an expert in what we're going to be talking about today, which is uh, depression and anxiety. And uh, you were actually recommended from a very good colleague and we're very excited to hear from you and hopefully learn and be able to apply uh, much of what we learn in our practice so Kristen, why don't you tell us a little bit more about your background and how you came to be interested in psych mental health and, and specifically a psych mental health NP? Yeah, sure. So I think it starts way back for me. Uh, nursing runs really deep in my family. Uh, my grandmother is a nurse. Uh, my mom is a nurse. And somewhere in my early 20s, kind of trying to figure out my path in life, my, my mom convinced me finally to uh, go into nursing. Uh, she worked for the in California for the State Department of Developmental Disabilities, where I actually went to to, uh, to daycare. So I, I always tell myself I grew up in a state hospital, uh, but that's where I started my career. So I started working in uh, one of the state hospitals in California as a psych tech trainee, uh, which is equivalent to a CNA. And I worked my way up from there. Uh, in California, they have a 
they have a license called a psychiatric technician, which is similar to an, L, to an LPN, but you have more of just the primary focus in psychiatry. So the first 10 years of my career, I was in the, a couple different state hospitals in California, uh, both inpatient across all the, demogra the different demographics of psychiatry, up into an administrative role from uh, the central nursing office. Uh, while I continued working, I continued in school. Uh, and that took me uh, through each degree individually. So the psych tech, the RN, uh, the ADN to BSN to, you know, I did my psych NP, and then I just finished my DNP at uh, Rush University. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, so the first uh, 10 years were in the, state, in the state hospital system, and then I transferred to the VA. Uh, for an opportunity to work in telehealth. So I moved out east to New York, and I worked across the Manhattan and Brooklyn VA campuses, implementing one of their first uh, telehealth programs in outpatient behavioral health. Uh, I've always been really excited and passionate about innovative uh, care delivery models with the goal of improving access and outcomes for individuals with, with mental health challenges. So that was a role that was really exciting for me. Uh, after three years there, they decided not to continue with the program, and I started looking for other options career-wise where I could continue to really pursue uh, innovative care delivery models. And that's what led me to the healthcare technology world, or startup, uh, healthcare startups. And I've been with uh, healthcare startups for the last seven years or so. Uh, really, again, driven by my passion to leverage technology and innovation to improve access and outcomes and care. Wow. Wow, that is quite an experience and you've learned a lot along the way and definitely an expert when it comes to uh, mental health. You've done so much and on both coasts and everything in between. So really, really interesting. Now today, we're just going to go back to the basics, the basics of depression and anxiety, uh, evaluation, treatment. Um, but from your perspective, exactly what are these two conditions? Yeah, so anxiety and depression are both mood disorders. Uh, they are very different, but they often appear together, and when they do, they often reinforce one another. I do want to say that anxiety and depression are the leading cause of disability in the United States. Uh, so a lot more common than I think people uh, might be aware of, with about 50% uh, of adults experiencing uh, symptoms of depression or anxiety at some time in their lifetime. Wow, that's stunning. So. They, they often come hand in hand. So uh, let's first talk about the differences in the two conditions. Yeah, so I'd say on a high level, it, it's a little bit easier to conceptualize. Uh, and as I can state it most simply, I think of anxiety as a lot more of an activating disorder with and while and depression being a lot heavier so the symptoms that we see associated with anxiety are a lot more of those activating uh, type of symptoms both physiologically and psychologically and then depression is the opposite of that a lot more of the uh, heavier uh, physiological symptoms and uh, a lot of our like psychological responses to things are turned down so really just kind of the opposite of each other when we look at it from that sort of um, scope or, or frame. Now, I was actually really surprised when you uh, stated how many people have actually um, been impacted by anxiety or depression or both. 
Um, so for all of our listeners, can you just share a little bit about signs and symptoms? Let's tar- start with anxiety. What are some signs and symptoms we might see? Uh, I know there's a spectrum, mild to severe, but can you tell us a little bit more about those? Yeah, so I think about, I like to break down symptoms symptoms of anxiety into the what's going on in our mind and what we're feeling in our body. So uh, a lot of what we experience with anxiety in our mind is an intense, uncontrollable worry or fear about everyday situations and then the future. So it's a lot of what if thinking. A lot of people I work with talk about always waiting for this shoe to drop. Uh, there's a lot of feeling anxious on edge, restlessness, can't sitting still, sometimes irritability. And then when we think about our body, a lot of that we feel very physically. So uh, we might notice fast heart rate, a lot of tension in our body, like in our shoulder, our, in our shoulders, our necks, sometimes um, sweating, sometimes like trembling, maybe not visibly trembling, but like feeling like we're trembling from the inside. Uh, sometimes all of that can then lead to fatigue. If you can imagine our body is kind of running uh, high cortisol, high stress, and it can lead to just burning out at some point. Right. So sticking with anxiety. So I, I thought that was interesting what you said about um, a lot of it can be in our mind and, and waiting for the other shoe to drop. So just waiting for something to go wrong or the worst to happen and and it does sound like it can get escalate and get worse um anxiety so for the everyday listener here on our podcast how could we i I know we listen a lot to better understand how we can better treat our patients so that's one thing i wanted to talk about but also we've been through a lot as nurse practitioners particularly over the past two and a half years with the pandemic. And I would imagine um, that some of the anxiety that has come with that has only been uh, exacerbated and, and, and may still continue even though we're moving into kind of a new phase, a new normal with this pandemic. Um, so sticking with anxiety, let's talk with just the listener. How might one uh, begin to see if they might have or sense it, whether or not they might have signs and symptoms of anxiety. And if so, um, what are some things that um, we can do? Yeah, so I think one of the things to look at when trying to figure out do is what I'm experiencing today, uh, normal nervousness, or is it something that's more concerning and maybe can be associated with like a clinical uh, diagnosis of something like generalized anxiety disorder? is looking at uh, the impact and the intensity of the things that we're experiencing and the frequency. So if uh, I'd say there a degree of worry or anxiety is normal for everyday situations, it's kind of like our, our body's internal like signal of fear and then to reinforce our safety, right? If we go towards something and we feel anxious about it or some fear, that could be something our body's natural way of keeping us safe. But if that fear response or those like persistent worrying is something that's there every day or more days than not, something that's cons- uh, there more days than not for an extended period of time, like over a week to two. And if it's impacting your uh, relationships, your ability to, to take care of yourself, uh, to do your work, those are the times where uh, I would consider seeking Uh, professional help versus trying to engage in more of the self-help kind of interventions. Uh, As far as self-help goes, 
I think some of the best thing that you can do is focus on diet, sleep, exercise. Be thinking about if you have uh, kind of like these pent up uh, fears or worries of like, what are some ways that we can move our body to help that, that kind of pent up energy move through us in a more healthy way. And really, really important is looking at our intake of uh, caffeines, coffee, energy drinks, alcohol, nicotine. All of those can really uh, exacerbate feelings of anxiety. And sleep. I left sleep out. Sleep is probably one of the most important things is uh, sleep hygiene, trying to be really mindful of your sleep patterns. Like what do you do before bed? Are you scrolling through the phone, watching uh, the nighttime news? Or are you like turn disengaging from technology for an hour and just allowing yourself time and space to wind down so that you can get a deep restorative sleep? Yeah, sleep is so important. And as well as all of those other um, actions that you had mentioned. Now, um, tell us a little bit more about, uh, it's up to you if you want, we want to start going down the track of talking about depression and those signs and symptoms. As as a clinician, um, I'm, I'm starting to think about the patient that comes in. And I would imagine there's some screening, some different things you do. And I don't know if those are tied together that you screen for both anxiety and depression uh, at the same time, or it's one or the other. So uh, let's talk a little bit more about the depression, uh, um, the condition of depression. Yeah, sure. So I'd say the, the primary symptoms of depression that we look for are hopelessness, helplessness, lack of motivation or drive, uh, an overwhelming sense of sadness, fatigue, uh, there's oftentimes a negative internal dialogue. Uh, sometimes that that ne- that negative internal d- dialogue is directed at yourself, like so- negative self-talk, negative self-image, imposter syndrome kind of kind of narratives. Uh, we see a loss of appetite. Uh, depression can Im- impact cognition, making it difficult for people to concentrate. And uh, sometimes people have negative thoughts around like not really caring if they're alive anymore or wanting to end their life. So now both sleep, both depression and anxiety uh, can impact sleep. Uh, so sleep is one of the things I didn't really touch on uh, as far as like a diagnostic perspective yet or symptomatology side of things yet. But sleep is something I really like to to educate people on that I'm working with as something to look out for because it's really objective. I think it could be hard sometimes to identify uh, if we're feeling certain, if we're feeling more stressed today than we normally are or feeling more down today than we normally are. But sleep is very objective and easy for us to see and measure. And it's something that it can be a real strong clinical marker that something uh, is like that, that there's some you need some additional support when it comes to your mood. Just a simple question. Are you, are you sleeping through the night? I, I, I mean, that is very objective. Go on. But both depression and anxiety also impact, they also impact your thought process. And something that we see common with both but different is that with anxiety, you're ruminating about things that are oftentimes more forward focused. Like I mentioned, what if, or uh, waiting for that shoe to drop. Whereas depression, we're still oftentimes having a lot of those ruminations, but it's a lot of times things that are more focused in the past. Like if I had only done this, or uh, I wish I had spent more time with this person, or I really messed up when I made this decision in my life. So both have those kind of like 
on loop thought patterns, but anxiety a lot of times more future focused and depression a lot of times repaying, replaying things from our past. So if a patient comes into the clinic, how do you, or, or you're doing a telehealth visit, how do you um, really drill down to this? Is there a screening tool? Yeah, I think everybody's, every practitioner's process might be a little bit different, uh, but there are screening, screening tools. The most common that we use uh, are the GAD-7 for anxiety and the PHQ-9 for depression, which I do know are often commonly used in a primary care setting as well to identify, maybe identify and screen clients for referral to a, to a psych NP or a psychiatrist. So generally what would happen if you're uh, going to seek treatment for depression or anxiety is you would meet with a, a psych practitioner that would get a really thorough uh, psychiatric history, uh, medical health history, a really good understanding of what's happening now, uh, would review past treatments with you, and ask some of the questions that are in the scale. Typically, you might find some people read straight off of the scale, or some people have adapted the questions that are in those scales into more of a conversational style to really identify what's going on today and how they can best help you. Okay. I think this is so interesting because there are many people out there that may be having um, anxiety and depression and just living with it and may not know that this is, um, it's worsening or that there are potential treatments out there um, that could help uh, so that they could have a healthier life, uh, certainly when it comes to their mental health. Um, So, you know, I think it's really interesting when we talk about uh, seeking treatment. Um, for someone like me, I might be able to reach out to you and um, set up a call and say, you know what, Kristen, I'm having these uh, signs, symptoms, and we can talk about it. But this is just not accessible for everyone. So let's talk about maybe someone who lives in downtown Denver or um, Colorado that has clinics accessible or they have um, telehealth or they have insurance that covers mental health visits versus someone that might live in a very rural area in, in Colorado. And I'm just picking that state, but is access an issue when it comes to uh, mental health treatment? And, and screening and, and treatment if necessary? Yes, abs- access is absolutely a huge issue. Uh, I think access is an issue when we think about uh, regional limitations as far as where does a person live. And then also when we think about socioeconomic factors as far as how uh, might a person pay for this treatment. Uh, so... In the last in the last few years, we've seen a huge increase in the availability or the ability for people to access mental health treatment mental health treatment through the use of telemedicine, which has meant that people in very rural uh, communities have now been able to dial in and connect with mental health practitioners in metropolitan areas, where prior to uh, the uh, you know, the, prior to the pandemic, I was working with people who were traveling two hours to see a provider before uh, they had been able to meet with somebody through telemedicine. So I think 
uh, if we think about our rural regions, uh, that's definitely a barrier to accessing care. I'm sure that there's uh, counties out there in different states that have maybe one or two mental health providers to serve thousands of, of people over a very large uh, region of land. Uh, the other big challenge is, is, is payment, right? So there's Largely in the mental health space, uh, providers are uh, not accepting insurance. So a lot of people to access mental health treatment uh, have to resort to cash pay. Uh, so that's something that we see just really big across mental health practitioners is uh, one, uh, the lack of access to mental health providers, and then two, the lack of access to mental health providers that might take your health insurance. So when we start thinking about Medicaid populations, uh, the opportunity to access care is significantly reduced, and uh, sometimes uh, that there's a big barrier there. I think also important to point out that if we remember back to what some of the symptoms are for depression, you have somebody that's really tired, um, can barely get out of bed, is feeling down about themselves, feeling hopeless and helpless, uh, having some problems with concentrating and staying focused on a task, and they have Medicaid. And they're in a rural, rural area, and they're trying to access care. And they're trying to access care going through all these barriers that, would, that, that are there within the constructs of the mental health treatment system in, in the United States, but doing all of that with, the, with those disabilities or those limitations that are symptoms of their depression, which are just compound the issue of them uh, being able to access care. And what we see a lot is just people give up. Yeah, access is huge. The last time I checked the um, HRSA website, uh, it stated over 155 million Americans lack access to mental health services. I can't help but think that that's an even larger number uh, just because we have so many people living across so many areas um, in, in, in our states, rural areas, urban areas. Um, do they have access to mental health services in their schools? Um, do we have access in correctional facilities? Um, certainly in our hospitals and our clinics, um, wherever those might be. Um, I really think over the last two and a half years, we have learned to leverage technology better with um, the use of telehealth, and that has improved access uh, somewhat, but we still have such a long way to go. And, you know, I think about so many uh, people that work in so many different professions out there uh, that might be experiencing anxiety and depression. And are they getting, do they know that they have these signs and symptoms? Do they know enough about what it is to seek treatment? Do they have access to treatment? Do they have the ability to pay for treatment? Um, all of those questions come to mind. And then I think about us as healthcare workers and um, our whole cohort of, of healthcare workers and how we have seen had burnout before the pandemic even began, according to the National Academy of Medicine. But then we've had this pandemic and we're seeing more and more healthcare workers tremendously impacted by burnout, but burnout is very interwoven into anxiety and depression. What are your thoughts there? Because burnout is definitely a big topic today. And so how do you see all of this intertwined? Yeah, I think how my view on that is it's really up to us as nurse leaders to take care of our own, right? Like healed people can heal people. 
right? If we aren't healed ourselves, what good are we to really be able to provide the best high quality care to others? So I think it's really uh, up to us as leaders that are creating policies and advocating uh, for for our employees that we're assuring that they have the adequate support and help that they need. That we also understand what it looks like if somebody on our team might be struggling and then understand what to do to step in to provide them support versus kind of sitting back and, and watching somebody fall apart. So I really think it's us having each other's back and knowing how to best support each other. Right. And not stigmatizing mental health um, support and services and making sure that they're readily available uh, for for us. Um, there, I loved when you said you have to be healed to healed to heal. I think that's just very profound. Let's talk a little bit more about technology. So it's definitely advanced uh, quite a bit um, at a rapid pace, especially over the last couple of years. How has technology advanced the assessment and management of anxiety and depression? Yeah, I think the primary way that it's advanced is uh, the, tr- the assessment and treatment of anxiety, depression is access. Uh, like I mentioned, there's huge rural communities where people would maybe have to drive two plus hours to find a mental health provider. And then we're hoping, fingers crossed, that that person accepts their insurance. And if not, that that person can then afford to pay out of pocket for care. So with the introduction of telemedicine for evaluation and treatment purposes, we've now been able to have our our locations, our metropolitan locations where a lot of practitioners might be centralized, uh, branch out to support a lot of the you know more rural communities. So uh, it's really just done huge, huge, huge for increasing access to care. And the data that I've seen shows that it's done so with uh, out an impact on safety or outcomes, right? So people are uh, receiving the same quality of care uh, for depression and anxiety through telemedicine than uh, if, if you were coming in to, to meet in person. That's important evidence to note. Uh, they are getting uh, the same quality of an experience Uh, with the encounter, whether that be via telehealth or in person. So now as a nurse practitioner um, that is incorporating this into their practice, what all do we need to know in order to be able to deliver services um, effectively through telehealth? Yeah, I think the most important thing to know is to stay on top of the uh, rapidly changing federal and state legislative landscape as far as it applies to telemedicine. So I think it's it's really important to understand uh, where uh, federal agencies stand uh, with the use of telemedicine and then also understand uh, what is your state-specific scope of practice and legislation say and, and how does that apply to um, the provision of services using telemedicine. So a lot of it is very detailed. Okay, so it's not just the logistics. It's not just being able to pick up the phone or... Uh, use um, your computer to have these encounters. It's it's really understanding the legislative landscape um, as well as reimbursement and those types of things. It sounds like that is relatively fluid. Um, now, I know aanp.org, we have a great webpage that has a lot of up-to-date information on telehealth. Are there other resources out there for nurse practitioners to be able to kind of keep up 
with this rapidly changing landscape? What I usually go to is the state's uh, board's website. Uh, so it's each state. That's where I usually find the um, a lot of information on things that are have just been passed or changes. Like if it's the state nursing website, the state's Department of Health website, uh, things like that. So now when we were speaking last week, we were talking a lot about the different types of treatment. And I know we could talk about this all day today because there are a lot of different treatment options out there. But there is one treatment that is rising in terms of its use, and that is ketamine. I've heard a lot of different opinions on ketamine. Um, Can you tell us a little bit more about the evidence behind ketamine as a treatment for depression? Yeah, sure. So I'll say, so I work in a, uh, one of the largest Uh, ketamine practices in the country. I've treated probably over 500 individuals with ketamine therapy, and I lead a large clinical organization, about 100 or so NPs, PAs, psychiatrists that also provide care uh, to individuals with ketamine therapy. So I will say that ketamine, uh, so ketamine therapy, when uh, applying appropriate screening, or inclusion, exclusion to treatment criteria is a very safe and effective treatment. Uh, So I can speak a little bit about a study that the company that I work for just recently published. Uh, So we actually recently published a study that included over 1,200 participants uh, that we treated through our program. It's published in the Journal of Affective Disorders. And uh, the the study looks at the outcomes of these individuals. So uh, in this group of 1,200 plus individuals, 89% reported an improvement in depression or anxiety symptoms. And we measured that as a at least one point positive change in the symptoms. Uh, I'm sorry, at least a one point positive change in the scores, uh, their GAD7 or PHQ9 scores. Six, 63% of, our, of, of the patients uh, experienced a greater than 50% point reduction. Uh, so that would be 63% of individuals reported a significant reduction in depression or anxiety. For both depression and anxiety together, over 30% achieved remission, which uh, is defined as virtually no symptoms after four sessions. And the sessions are, uh, through our program, a week apart. Uh, 62% of participants who reported suicidal ideation at intake uh, no longer reported any suicidal ideations after four sessions. Uh, Also important to note that depression response rates were significantly higher than those seen in studies for traditional treatments such as antidepressants, talk therapy, and also higher than those reported for IV ketamine. So we have years and years of studies out there looking at IV uh, ketamine the data that I'm speaking to and the program I'm speaking to is uh, using sublingual ketamine uh, at home. And lastly, and most importantly, safety, fewer than 5% of participants reported any side effects from treatment. And the side effects experience were often transient, like transient increases in, uh, blood, in blood pressure, heart rate, nausea, vomiting, things that usually resolved within two and a half to four hours after treatment. Okay. So 
Now, I would imagine many nurse practitioners work in primary care, and this might be something that's floating around thinking that maybe they need to refer uh, a patient to a psych mental health NP or psychiatrist. Are there some key things that a primary care NP would need to know about ketamine therapy? Yeah, so I think it's starting with an understanding of what are the different treatment paradigms or options for care. Uh, so ketamine is being offered uh, following uh, currently following several different models. The most common being in-person IV treatment, and uh, and also just as common it currently is the at-home sublingual treatment. So I think knowing which option might be better for for a patient that you're working with is a good place to start. Uh, so the at-home ketamine treatments really are, are able to um, offer treatment at a significantly reduced cost than the in-person model. Uh, but these are people that um, there, there might be some of the more higher acuity mental health needs that wouldn't be appropriate for at-home treatment. But if you have somebody that you uh, think has pretty uh, standard depression, anxiety across the spectrum from mild to severe, I think it would make sense to referring to uh, an at-home ketamine treatment program just because the cost the to access the treatment and the outcomes. So if we're looking at cost and outcomes, the outcomes are the same and, and better for some programs. And we're looking at maybe like 70% or so less in cost. Uh, if you have somebody that has um, acute suicidality, severe past trauma, uh, the, the type of uh, experience with a past trauma where if you even bring it up to them, they become very guarded and start crying and really just can't touch that at all. I'd say at a high level, those are the individuals that might benefit from an in-person treatment just to have more cl- closer supervision throughout the course of treatment while while they're doing those sessions. Right, that makes sense. Now, um, so, so do you have to have failed other types of treatment before moving to this type of therapy? That, that's a great question. So a lot of the, so I, I hear a lot of, um, providers and patients that I work with too assume that ketamine as a, a last line therapy. It's I meet with a lot of people and they're uh, considering ECT or ketamine therapy. And I think what that comes from is a lot of the original studies that were published on ketamine were looking at ketamine specifically for treatment resistant or refractory depression. The model that we have and that other you know in-person IV or at-home sublingual ketamine treatment models follow. Um, using the generic ketamine, we don't have that REMS that's limiting us to, to treatment-resistant depression. Uh, I see as somebody that's you know had a lot of experience with ketamine, uh, is I really see ketamine as uh, a, a great option for people as first-line treatment. I've seen people uh, not have gone through treatment in the past with standard uh, or traditional SSRIs or anxiety medications because they're a lot of what I hear is people don't want to have to take something every day and maybe they've seen a family member have a really bad experience with the antidepressant maybe it didn't work well for them they had side effects they started taking it and they couldn't get off of it uh, because of the side effects from discontinuing an SSRI Uh, so they've seen the option of ketamine come up and, they, and they're curious because they know that uh, they've read that ketamine isn't something that you have to take every day. Uh, for a lot of people, you do a series of treatments and then some people I work with will take uh, six treatments and then they feel great for six months or a year. So I mean, thinking about as a first line option uh, through that context, it really makes sense. 
Uh, also say that I've seen people have really great results with ketamine therapy as an adjunct to their current treatment regimen. So maybe they're uh, on some medications currently for depression or anxiety and feeling about 50% or so better, but there's maybe some of that lingering negative self-talk or things like that. And the ketamine therapy really helps from do a lot of the deeper psychological healing to resolve a lot of the lingering residual uh, symptoms of depression or anxiety. And they might then choose to maintain their current daily treatment regimen and then the ketamine therapy as an adjunct when needed. Okay. You know, you touched on other uh, kind of surrounding uh, types of therapy too. So it's not just, it sounds like it's not, wouldn't be just the ketamine uh, therapy under uh, the oversight of a psych mental health NP, psychiatrist and expert, but there are also other things. Um, so it sounded like you mentioned uh, counseling, uh, support. Um, what are some of those other things that would need to go along with that? Yeah, so uh, I think it's important to point out too, and we also be, be helpful when thinking about who to refer your patients to, is that uh, something that also really puts the different uh, uh, treatment models for ketamine, sets them apart from one another, is the support around the medicine and how the provider views the value of that, sport, of that support. So there are definitely, and this is more common for the in-person IV ketamine treatment models, uh, there's definitely some programs that really view the value of ketamine through a purely medical model. A lot of times these practices are ran by anesthesiologists, and if you look at you know who's operating the practice, a good signal that they're following more of the medical model is you wouldn't see necessarily see any uh, mental health practitioners on their list of, of providers. Uh, so this uh, uh, treatment paradigm is really focused around uh, a lot of the neurobiological benefits of the ketamine, uh, the neurorestorative effects of the medicine, and, and it's really focused on uh, targeting improvement through really the flooding of the brain with this medication. Uh, and they're kind of just not touching the therapeutic uh, potential component. Uh, the other programs, such as the one that I was referring to in the, the, from the, the data that I, that I quoted, uh, focus on, uh, they see the value of the medicine, they understand the, the neurobiological healing potential of the medicine, but also really understand the value uh, and the healing potential of the experience itself. The program that I discussed uh, starts from the beginning with preparation uh, for the whole experience. So we really start at the beginning with someone on intention setting, helping them prepare really best prepare themselves for a treatment. And then we work really closely with, with them throughout their treatment in between the sessions to process the experience and integrate the experience. So uh, some of the work that might be done around ketamine therapy uh, could be uh, some people actually do therapy while they're in the session. So I've taken the medicine and I have, I'm sitting with my therapist and uh, I'm gonna talk through what's coming up for me as I'm going through this experience. Uh, some programs, uh, the person might be having, have headphones on, eye mask on, listening to music and going through a very internally reflective experience after which we're asking them to kind of download the content of the experience into a journal and then talk with somebody to process. So uh, this was your intention. This is what came up for you. What do you think that that means? What can you then do with that? How can we help you do something with that to drive meaningful, lasting change in your life? 
uh, when working with a therapist, it also can be really valuable. Like the next day after a session, you have your journal and you say, these were my intention. This is what came up. For, this is what came up for me. And this is a therapist that hopefully knows you and can understand how some of these core themes that came up from this, um, experience that goes deep within your psyche or subconscious and brings content up to the surface to process can really understand how some of these things that maybe came up tie into some of the core themes that you've been working together with through therapy. So it really like creates movement or space from a psychological standpoint through this access to the content. And the way I view it really working is the coupling of the experience with the medicine with what's happening in your brain from a neurobiological standpoint. Because if you just had an experience that's uh, brought up a lot of content for you to process and work through and you've, and you've taken a medicine that's really, um, brought your brain to a more healthy state from a neurobiological standpoint by um, enhancing neuroplasticity and really just kind of fertilizing parts of your brain so that uh, you're able to better really receive and process new information. Wow, this is all so fascinating. I've just really uh, enjoyed speaking with you. I, I've enjoyed talking about just the basics of anxiety and depression and how to uh, recognize that within ourselves, um, but also to screen and, and treat patients appropriately. Uh, definitely enjoyed talking a little bit more about this particular uh, therapy. Um, any last words? I know uh, it's the time of year um, that we're all heading into the holidays and um, and we're in the midst of this pandemic too and, and new variants and dealing with all of that and, 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 and we have lots of people out there that really need to do a self-check of their mental health and are, are we really where we need to be? Uh, any final words for uh, all of our listeners out there, NPs, patients, um, in terms of just overall mental health? Yeah, I think uh, what I'd like to, to leave the group listening with is uh, to uh, keep an eye out uh, for the people that are close to you. Really, uh, if you're noticing changes in people around you, uh, don't be afraid to speak up and check in with somebody. Just asking somebody, how are you doing? And not taking a fine, like digging a little bit more and saying like, hey, okay, you say you're fine, but I've been noticing that you're just like not your bubbly self recently, or you've been calling in, uh, calling in more frequently. Like, what's that about? Have you thought about that? So like kind of asking some open-ended questions to create more of a, like, hey, I, I've, I see you and I really want to hear, not just a, hey, how are you doing? Uh, also, too, really important to check in with yourself. Uh, I, I really believe in the value of a daily self-check, of like taking a moment to look at ourselves and say, like, how was today for me? Did I, did I f notice any changes in my mood? Have I felt like, how does my body feel? Do I notice more tension in my neck and my shoulders? How are my relationships? Have I, did I snap at somebody close to me? Have I not been taking care of my like personal responsibilities? So all of those kind of things that can be early markers that something is shifting. The first step to changing anything is, in, is identifying it within ourselves. So the best way to do that is just to commit to a daily, like checking in with ourselves. Thank you so much. I feel like we could have a whole series here um, to um, speak with you and really dig into these topics as well as many others. I really appreciate you joining me today and hope that you have a wonderful holiday as well. And um, happy um, upcoming Nurse Practitioner Week. 
Um, It's just around the corner. So I'm so grateful for you, Kristen, and all of the people that you impact. And so grateful that you're a nurse practitioner. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Kristen. And thank you to everyone listening today. If you would like to learn more about the work NPs are doing to address the needs of patients with mental health concerns, the AANPCE Center currently offers 12 CE sessions on this topic. One of those topics includes nurses as the patient and burnout as the condition, focusing care inward. So thinking about our own health and well-being. This activity offers 1.05 contact hours of CE credit and AANP members get more, including a 60% cost savings. A new member benefit was launched on November 1st. So watch for your free course of the month CE activity at the start of each month. You may also consider joining AAMP's Psych Mental Health Community for just $20 annually where members engage in discussions and exchange new insights with NPs who share a common interest in or specialize in this field. To support your well-being, AANP's in-power programs offer new members a new selection of wellness resources and engagement activities each month, including a partnership with the Emotional PPE Project, which is free for all members to access at any time. Please subscribe to this podcast, share it with your colleagues, and check back regularly for new episodes. And as always, be kind, be safe, be effective, and be the voice of the nurse practitioner.